In today's episode on the history of the Christian right, we look at America's first born-again president. This was the first president who used that terminology when he ran for office. Now, this part of the series, when it was originally released uh, to me, it was really interesting because it really altered my perspectives of President Jimmy Carter. I definitely don't support all that Carter said or did, but I realized his platform, his his philosophy when he ran for president in 1996 was much more closely aligned to the original aspirations of Christian voters and Christian progressives of the past than the Christian right that formed during his time in office as a response. So, so we have two paths diverging right here at this point in the story. Anyway, we get into all that in this episode, and this is really where the birth of the modern Christian right begins. I think it's important to recognize that this is really different from what came before when it comes to active Christian engagement in politics. Hope you enjoy this episode. Be sure to subscribe to the newsletter at theendofhistory.net. Remember, new subscribers receive a free ebook, the Personal Application and Study Guide ebook that supplements my newest book, Politically Incorrect, Real Faith in an Era of Unreal Politics. So without further ado, let's jump into today's episode. This is the end of history. A true revolution of values will soon cause us to question the fairness and justice of many of our past and present policies. We believe that these an axis of evil arming to threaten the peace of the world. Most of us don't realize how dark the 1970s were for America. This was a decade when all the tumult of the 1960s, all that tumult we looked at in the last episode, it really kind of unraveled into despair and, and disillusionment, almost universally across the country. That decade started, the decade of the 1970s. It started with the riots and protests and college shootings and, and with Vietnam. And in the middle of the decade, you've got Nixon. He's resigning and the, the scandal that was surrounding all of that. Then there's the, the OPEC embargo and the gas lines. By the end of the decade, you have Americans taken hostage in Iran. You've got the Soviet Union invading Afghanistan, and America seemingly impotent to do anything about it. The chaos of the 60s kind of boiled over into this sort of, uh, I guess, a lethargic defeatism of the 1970s. The riots in the city streets of the 60s kind of faded into the, the depressing montage of what was, rise, of the, what was rising poverty of the, of the 70s. Decaying infrastructure, a general disconnect within society was taking over. We started seeing serial killers. They became kind of an American thing during the decade of the 1970s. You've got the Zodiac Killer. You've got Dean Carrill, Son of Sam, John Wayne Gacy. This is all in the 70s, unlike anything that had come before. The 1970s are seen as a golden age of domestic terrorism in America. Even if most of our history books don't talk about it, there were almost 1,500 terrorist attacks in America during the 1970s alone, and almost 100% of those attacks were domestic terrorist threats and attacks. These were the radicals of the 60s who hadn't quite yet sold out, and they were thinking they would literally start a revolution against the U.S. government during this decade of the 1970s. Other radicals in the 1960s went out a different way. Many of them started turning to religion. 
This was a time when the Colts became a big deal in America. It's, it's always been interesting to me how you can kind of follow the pathway of people of this generation through bands like the Beatles. You know, they were the young kids of the British invasion in the early 60s. Then they became more serious in their music, I guess, by the end of the decade. And so they've got the protests and the causes that they were talking about and the different albums that came out in the late 60s. Then in the 70s, guys like John Lennon and, and George Harrison, they started turning to Eastern mysticism, looking for some other explanation, some other source, some other reason for life and what they were doing. The children of the 60s were getting burned out and they were turning to religion by the 1970s. And a lot of them tried to merge the 60s drug culture with that religion. So you have guys like Charles Manson and his murderous clan over in California. You had a lot of cults during this time period too. You've got Jim Jones and the mass suicide of, the, of his following really that was during that same time period. It was just a weird period of American history where disillusionment and despair, they kind of reigned supreme, even among the, the Christians of the country. Some of these shifts were taking place within Christian culture. You had this thing called the Jesus People Movement take off. These were former hippies from the 60s who gave their lives to Christ, but they still held on to some of their, their hippie ways from the 60s, right? And so they said Jesus was the original long-haired hippie, and they were following his ways with this doctrine of peace, love, and pacifism. You know, and maybe that's too simplified a version, but that was what it was. And Elton John, the, the musician, the, the singer, the artist, he makes a few obscure references to this movement, the Jesus people, in his song Live On and, and Tiny Dancer. And, and Tiny Dancer, he's singing about Jesus freaks out in the streets. And that's, that's the Jesus freaks he's talking about, this Jesus movement, this Jesus people movement. In the 1970s, it was kind of like Americans, they were just worn out. They were worn out by the 60s and everything that came there. When Richard Nixon left office, his new vice president, Gerald Ford, because President Nixon's original vice president, Spiro Agnew, he also had to resign under a cloud of corruption. Well, Gerald Ford took over. And the new president took to the podium, even as President Nixon, or former President Nixon, was flying away from the White House, President Gerald Ford put it this way. My fellow Americans, our long national nightmare is over. Everyone kind of hoped it was over, but to be honest, no one knew for sure. Well, then came the 1976 presidential campaign, and this is the last phase of the Christian right before they were fully organized. That's the way we can look at this in 1976. This was, that was up ahead, the full organization, the full organizing of the Christian right. But Jimmy Carter, this somewhat obscure outsider from Georgia, he came into the 1976 presidential race and America's political scene, and he kind of changed everything. He, came, he, cha he was a game changer. Every once in a while, in American politics, things get really, really bad. And when this happens, you have a sort of automatic system reset in the form of a, usually a political outsider. Teddy Roosevelt was kind of that way. He was an outsider to the Gilded Age. And when you look at the story, he never really should have been president. It was like the corruption in the system just couldn't be sustained any longer, and the system itself had to be reset, and it brought Teddy Roosevelt in. In 2008, President Obama, he was the outsider. He was this U.S. senator, but, but really just barely. He was really more of an outsider. In any other election before 2008, there's really no way President Obama would have won. One of the, one of the big uh, chronicles or chroniclers of the 2008 election 
and President Obama's surprising rise to the presidency, named the book that they wrote about that campaign and about the, the 08 election, they called the book The Game Changer. Okay, and that's really what it was. Well, in 1976, the game changer was Jimmy Carter. Now, Carter was unlike anything, not only America, but especially the presidency had ever seen before. He was a Southerner. He came from a, a family of peanut farmers, of all things, in Georgia. But he was also a bit of a, an intellectual. He wasn't quite a rocket scientist, but he did serve on a nuclear submarine in the Navy. After leaving the Navy, he returned to Georgia. He took over the family peanut farm and business, and then he entered briefly into state politics. And he eventually rose to the office of Georgia governor in the early 1970s. Now, this is a guy who had no real national exposure before 1976, and that alone kind of gave him a special qualification to run for office in a nation that was burnt out after the 60s and then after Watergate. Welcome to election 76. I'm glad to be here. My first question, uh, since people don't know you as a presidential candidate and actually don't know you as a person, uh, I'd like you to introduce yourself to the to them in, in whatever way you choose. Well, the best way to be introduced is personally uh, shaking hands in factory shift lines and shopping centers, and we'll be doing as much of that as possible, but uh, I will give you a little background about myself. I'm a farmer. I've been growing certified seed for the last uh, 21 years. I grow certified seed wheat, soybeans, but mostly peanuts. In fact, I grow the best, best uh, certified seed peanuts in the world. Before that, uh, I was a nuclear physicist. I was in the Navy for 11 years. I'm a graduate of a Naval, Naval Academy in Annapolis. I went to Georgia Tech. My people have lived in Georgia for 210 years. I'm the first member of my family who ever had a chance to uh, finish high school. I grew up on a farm. I've worked all my life. I know what it means to have a good government, a good uh, education that my father, my grandfather, and others didn't have. I've been the governor of a large state. Uh, I just went out of office this year. Before that, I was in the state senate for two terms, and before that, I was on local school board for seven years. I think I have the capability of uh, meeting the nation's problems. I've traveled in foreign countries uh, all my adult life. In fact, I've been in uh, 11 foreign nations in the last uh, two or three years. I think I understand uh, the basic problems of our nation and have a capability of a tough, competent, business-like manager of government. I'm a Southerner, and I'm proud of a heritage that shows concern for the working men and women who are the backbone of our great nation. These are the people who are often cheated by an unfair system of government. These are the people forgotten by the present administration. While the influential and powerful get special favors, when I'm elected president, that will change. We in the South can help by voting for Jimmy Carter, a leader for a change. More important than all of this, though, to our story of the history of the religious right is the fact that Jimmy Carter was a very strong, a committed, born-again Christian. Now, I have to pause right here. Because when I say that, when I say he was a born-again, committed Christian, a lot of people think they know what I'm saying, but they don't. They think I'm saying that Carter was a Christian like just about every other president says they are. You know, they all say they're Christian. They go to church like, you know, every president goes to church of some sort. But that's just the point. Up to this point in time, this period of time, 76, presidents didn't really do that. It was the exception, not the rule. And even if they did do it, they were, they were always part of a very mainstream tra traditional denominations like the Episcopal or Presbyterian Church. It was almost closer to, I guess, a country club than real religious devotion. 
And I'm not saying that to be insulting to people of either of those denominations. They're just, they're just mainstream in America. They're traditional. And, and that's my point. Carter was none of those things. This is a guy who talked about being born again. Presidents, presidents didn't talk like that in 1976. They might go to church, but they didn't talk about their salvation experience. Most of them didn't know what that was. Jimmy Carter had a personal testimony of faith. And this was something that had never been heard of in the American presidency before. He told about growing up in the Baptist church and he heard a sermon once where the preacher had asked, if you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? And somehow that changed his life and his personal faith became a real sincere driving force of who and what he was all about. He was a deacon at the Baptist church where he grew up and eventually even taught Sunday school there. There's some fairly famous video footage from the 76 campaign where all these reporters are gathered around this Baptist church that Carter attended and where he taught Sunday school at. And they're just kind of staring at the church, not sure what to do. Jimmy Carter comes out, shakes their hands, and invites them in to, to hear, his, hear his Sunday school lesson. Now, this is old school Southern Baptist like your aunts and uncles and grandma and grandpas grew up with. And Carter was all about that. His, his faith was central to his politics. He was a progressive on civil rights, which was really a big deal in Georgia during this time period. And he did that because of his faith. That was how he saw politics. It was driven by his faith, not his politics driving his faith. And even when he became president, he was, as much as he could be, a big-time humanitarian. In fact, after the presidency, Jimmy Carter has, to this day, done more for humanitarian causes than prob probably any other living president. And again, that's all driven by this deep, sincere conviction and personal faith of former president Jimmy Carter. Now, I'll say all this. And if you grew up in the Bible Belt of America, the South, as a member of the religious right, it's kind of confusing. Because Carter was a Democrat. He's a liberal. He was everything the religious right was not, or what they came to be not about. He was so much of what an active Christian politician uh, was, was about. This, but that wasn't what 1976 was about, though. Right? That's the difference. Things were different in 1976. I guess the best way to explain it, I remember a story or a, an event in my own life when I was young, there was a guy in our church that I grew up in. He talked about Jimmy Carter like he was the greatest president that the U.S. had ever had, right? The greatest president who ever lived. This was post-Ronald Reagan years, the late 1980s, early 1990s. And this guy saying that Jimmy Carter was great, somehow in my mind, borderlined on blasphemy. I mean, Jimmy Carter gave away the Panama Canal. He was a liberal. He was for abortion. How could a Christian be a supporter of Jimmy Carter? But in 1976, most Christians were supporters of Jimmy Carter. Pat Robertson, even Pat Robertson, kind of the, the poster boy for extremist positions of the Christian right in the 1990s, he endorsed and supported Carter in the 1976 election. And this is important to see because things shifted really big time by the end of Jimmy Carter's term as president. Everything changed after this. In 1976, though, a Christian could be a, uh, uh, well, a, Christian could be a Democrat. And also be in politics. He could be a Christian and still be in, uh, in politics. They didn't have to be Republicans. The two weren't synonymous yet. The idea of uh, Christianity or being a Christian and being a Republican, they didn't mean the same thing yet or have the implied synonymous meaning, right? Yet your faith was one thing, your politics were another thing. Your faith could drive your politics, but a real Christian in 1976 didn't let his politics drive his face. 
or his faith. This was 1976. America had a born-again, Bible-believing president in the White House. He's going to restore honor and trust in the system, and he was focused on ideals, not just politics and interest. He was going to make America a land we could be proud of again. Well, unfortunately for Jimmy Carter, and maybe for America too, history wasn't quite finished with wringing out the rags of political repercussions that had been sowed by the political establishment in Washington since World War II. For all the good things that Jimmy Carter was, he inherited, as president, he inherited a mess. And all his morality, all his humanitarianism, all his good intentions couldn't really get around those facts. Thanks to the 1970s OPEC oil embargo and the massive spending of the 60s, America was in the middle of a massive recession when Jimmy Carter took office. And interest rates, they shot through the roof after 76. And it really started before then, but after 76, it really kicked in. One crisis after another seemed to collide into this good guy Jimmy Carter's presidency so that by the end of his first term, America seemed to be edging into an abyss of despair that they were never going to get out of. Now, people didn't particularly blame Carter for the problems, but they didn't believe he had what it took to get him out of it either. And this is where his famous crisis of confidence speech came in 1979. It's probably one of the most honest speeches an American president has ever given. Our people are losing that faith, not only in government itself, but in the ability as citizens to serve as the ultimate rulers and shapers of our democracy. As a people, we know our past, and we are proud of it. Our progress has been part of the living history of America, even the world. We always believed that we were part of a great movement of humanity itself called democracy, involved in the search for freedom and that belief has always strengthened us in our purpose. But just as we are losing our confidence in the future, we are also beginning to close the door on our past. In a nation that was proud of hard work, strong families, close-knit communities, and our faith in God, too many of us now tend to worship self-indulgence and consumption. Human identity is no longer defined by what one does, but by what one owns. But we've discovered that owning things and consuming things does not satisfy our longing for meaning. We've learned that piling up material goods cannot fill the emptiness of lives which have no confidence or purpose. The symptoms of this crisis of the American spirit are all around us. For the first time in the history of our country, a majority of our people believe that the next five years will be worse than the past five years. Two-thirds of our people do not even vote. The productivity of American workers is actually dropping. And the willingness of Americans to save for the future 
has fallen below that of all other people in the Western world. Looking back on it today, especially this election time of the year, I can't help but wonder where America might have gone had they listened to the crisis of confidence speech, to the words that President Carter was saying in this speech in 1979. I have no doubt it would have altered the course of American history, but it also would have changed the nature of America itself, not just our timeline, not just our history, but who we are as a people itself. Carter spoke out against the rampant American individualism and, and the selfishness that would really come to define the decade of decadence in the 1980s that was about to land on us. He was speaking the truth, and somehow the nation missed it in 1979. That's another story, though. For all the crisis and hardship America encountered while Jimmy Carter was president, that's not what caused the divide between him and the rising influence of the religious right. Christians had supported presidents in hard times before. They had even supported presidents who had their interests at heart when the president was clearly in the wrong in other areas. And I'm thinking like Nixon and Cambodia, just at the beginning of the decade, right? The thing that turned Christians who had supported Jimmy Carter in 1976 away from him by 1980 was, strangely enough, the Internal Revenue Service, the IRS. Now, there's several sources out there on this, but one of the most recent was actually a story out of Politico, or Politico in 2014. And what happened is that anti-segregation laws that passed in the late 60s empowered the U.S. government to stop segregation in institutions throughout America. Well, by the late 1970s, some of those institutions that were still really largely segregated were white Christian schools, private schools, and private institutions in the South. Now, to be clear, there wasn't a lot of demand among black students or parents to get into these schools in the first place, but the segregation existed anyway. So the anti-segregation laws meant that the government could withdraw the tax-exempt status that these schools, these Christian schools had, because they were now violating anti-segregation federal law, right? So there are a few things we have to dig into here to really understand it. It's easy to just paint this part of the story as the origins of the Christian right being racism. And that's usually the way the story is told, right? Were there racists in the, Christ racists in the Christian right in the 1970s, in the late 1970s? Very likely. Was this refusal to desegregate based on racism? Yeah, definitely. But that really wasn't all that was going on. This was also about government interference with the church, and that's a big no-no in American Christian politics. It has been ever since the very beginning of American politics. Christians have always been fearful of the government interfering in their religion. Now, this fear is partly based on history, but it's also based on a really strong individual rights mentality that thrives in America. So there's been a story, to, to kind of paint a picture, there's been a story moving around recently around the Christian blogosphere. This is just in the past couple of weeks about this pastor in Georgia today who's being challenged by the state to hand over the notes of his sermons as part of a discrimination lawsuit. Now, Christians are in an uproar all over the place because what right does the state have to review and judge a Christian leader's notes on the Bible? There was a similar case in Houston a year or so back where a, uh, a LGBT activist mayor was trying to get Christian pastors in trouble for speaking against homosexuality. She wanted them to turn over their sermon notes, just like this guy in Georgia. Well, the big red line for Christians in American politics is that the state cannot get 
into their churches and dictate what they say or what they believe. So in the late 70s, when the IRS threatened these Christian institutions with the loss of their tax-exempt status unless they lined up with federal law, many Christian leaders saw their worst fears and prophecies finally coming true. For two decades, they had been talking about how the, the rise of humanism and secularism in America was going to eventually lead to America becoming like the Soviet Union the atheist Soviet Union, as you recall. It would become a place where it was dangerous to be a Christian. The liberal politics of the 60s had now evolved into an attack on the church and traditional beliefs itself. It was the liberals who formed all of this, and it was the liberals who were coming after the Christians and the Christian faith through these laws. Well, this message wasn't conveyed, well, it was conveyed easily to traditional Christians in the South. The attitude and fear of government intrusion, that was really a shared value among most Christians. But it was a real harder thing to sell to the public at large. If you didn't relate to this value, this fear of the government attacking your faith, then the story sounds just like it does today when you look back on it. It looks just like a bunch of racists fighting for the ways things have always been. And again, racism was part of the story, but that wasn't the real story of the Christians at this time. There was other stuff going on. So it's at this point that Christians began to organize. They were called fundamentalists back then. Today we call them evangelicals. They were the Bible-believing people who saw the the centerpiece of the world as the Bible, as the gospel. And their Christianity wasn't a country club religion or tradition. This was life. This was the real deal for them. So as these Christians began to organize, a a pastor by the name of Jerry Falwell, most people will recognize that name, Jerry Falwell quickly rose to the top as the leading voice among this organization of active political Christians. All right. Now, Falwell had started a small church in Virginia way back when he was 22 years old in the 1950s, and it grew from 35 members to this huge megachurch by the 1970s. In 1956, he began broadcasting a radio show known as the Old Time Gospel Hour. It soon became a, a television show, too, and both the radio and the television show, they were being broadcast across the country by the 1970s. In the early 70s, he also founded Liberty University, and this would become one of the, the largest Christian universities throughout the world. Now, from an outside and objective perspective, and it's hard to find outside objective perspectives on Jerry Falwell today, but he was a staunch traditionalist. He was pro-Vietnam War in the 60s, pro-segregation, anti-civil rights movement, anti-equal rights amendment, because he, like other traditionalists, believed wives and mothers belonged in the home. So he's the image of that traditional Christian perspective whose faith represented or was almost synonymous with a traditional America. A lot of people related to him during this time period. We looked at this in the last episode. A lot of people thought the same way that he did. The 60s, the radicals, the liberals, they all represented the wrong way. The right way for Jerry Falwell and those who believed like him was the way of traditional America. This was the America built upon in God we trust. So his faith and his Americanism, they were real closely linked together. So by the time of the IRS actions against private schools in the South in the mid-70s, Falwell had all but given up hope in being delivered from the liberal liberal secularist humanism, as he called it. The culture wars were being fought and won by the radicals, by the secularists, and by the liberals. The Christians kept waiting for the government to protect them and deliver them, and they were losing ground. So it was time, in Falwell's mind, it was time to fight back. So he and other leaders began to scan the world around them, and one of their first targets was the issue of abortion. Now, strangely enough, as polarizing an issue as abortion is today, it took several years before Christians really spoke out against it. 
The Supreme Court decision of Roe v. Wade was in 1973. It was almost until the, or it wasn't until almost the end of the decade before Christians organized and spoke out against abortion in any loud form. Maybe this wasn't because they failed to oppose abortion at the time, but they just weren't organized yet. Well, Jerry Falwell organized it. He organized the Christian right in its inception. Now, Richard Nixon had once talked about this silent majority, as he called it, this silent majority in America who still believed in tradition and good morals and values and patriotism. This was the America that really voted him into office, Richard Nixon, and during, in 1968 and again in 72. The cry, they voted him in against the cries of the hippies and the radicals of the 60s. Well, Jerry Falwell played off that term of the silent majority and named his new organization the Moral Majority. I was, I was taught in Bible college, religion and politics don't mix. And that preacher of the gospel should not comment on, get involved in the political processes in any way. It was a wrong position, but it was one that we were indoctrinated in. We, we, we were taught that as young men. Uh, the liberal church had never believed that. The National Council, the World Council of Churches were very involved. The William Sloan Coffins were very involved in those days. But we were not, and we actually looked down on it. And when we were challenged during the, the civil rights days to get involved in marches, I, I, I said, no, preach, pray, practice it, stay out of the marches. It, it came, it, it, there's been a, there was a generation of that before, uh, after Prohibition, the church realized what a stupid thing that was to have been caught up in prohibition that brought on the crime wave, that brought back the re repeal of prohibition. And the overreaction was no more involvement, out. And, and we youngsters caught up in those days were looked on, if, if we even discussed it or said we're going to vote for Ike, for Eisenhower, we'd get a bad letter on that. And so we were gunshot. And, and, and we really, really and truly, except for the civil rights issue, Roe v. Wade was yet future. Uh, voluntary prayer in the public schools was still there. Uh, most of the front burner social issues today were non-existent then, civil rights being the only exception. And, and we all felt that's, gonna, that's going to come out okay, and they, the church doesn't need to be involved. We were wrong. And we finally came to that realization I came to it when I began, prior to that, baptizing black families. I began to realize what hostility there is over this and, uh, and what little justification. So the answer is that uh, we were taught that. It was a mindset. And uh, long since, when I, by the time I got or organized the moral majority, uh, we got the religious right so involved that they may, we may have gone too far. <laughs> 1962-63, the Shemp case and others that removed prayer and Bible reading from the public schools was certainly a, con a disconcerting thing in the, in the evangelical camp. But Roe v. Wade was the straw that broke the camel's back. When we legalized abortion on demand, we, like the Catholics, never thought that would ever be, not in this country, because we believe that life begins at conception uh, from a biblical perspective. And so... And there was very little science to prove that life begins much earlier than birth then. There were no sonograms. There were, this medical science didn't help us at all. We were totally a biblical position. But Roe v. Wade uh, 
was the straw that broke the camel's back, and we all got to rethinking. And I, I began meeting with uh, people that I respected to ask, you know, like Dr. Francis Schaefer, the late Dr. Schaefer, and others, how can I get involved? I, you know, I've, I've preached against involvement. I've got a congregation who, who knows that I've preached against involvement. So as the moral majority formed, they set themselves apart from things, or from folks like Billy Graham, and things that Billy Graham had done by getting behind a specific candidate. Instead of supporting just one candidate, they were going to support moral positions on specific issues. That was how they were going to do it differently. Abortion became one of those biggest issues. Second to that, at least in the late 70s and the early years of the moral majority, the Equal Rights Amendment became another. The Equal Rights Amendment was something pushed by the feminist groups to get an amendment to the Constitution that legalized equal rights for women. In principle, the moral majority might not have uh, argued against equal treatment of women, but they had seen this script before. Once this was entered into the Constitution, the government wouldn't only interfere in churches, but now they could interfere in families and homes and marriages. So they were opposed to the Equal Rights Amendment. These positions of the moral majority had significant implications on how Christians interacted with politics. Jimmy Carter might have been the first publicly professing born-again Christian in America but he wasn't going to be supported any longer by the Christians, not those of the moral majority, because he was on the wrong side suddenly of their politics. A new definition was rising for what it meant to be Christian and to be, uh, be political. And Jimmy Carter didn't fit into that definition. In fact, within a few years' time of the forming of the moral majority in 1979, many would wonder if someone who held the views of Jimmy Carter could actually even be a Christian at all. That's how significant and impacting this group and their ideology became after 79. The best records I can find show that the term religious right was first used in the 1980 presidential election. As Ronald Reagan defeated Jimmy Carter and took office as the new president of the United States, he didn't win because of the religious right, but they certainly didn't hurt him either. For the first time ever in a presidential election, the Christians were organized and they were a force that could either be helpful or mighty formidable. This was the moral majority in 1980, and this was only the beginning. Thanks for listening to The End of History with J.B. Shreve. Check out more episodes at iTunes and wherever you download quality podcasts. Join us online at theendofhistory.net for articles and essays from the end of history. Follow JB on Twitter at JB underscore Shreve. The End of History is produced by Windmill Media. Windmill Media.